you have a Bible with you today, and I hope you do, open it up to Mark chapter 5. That's where we are today. Hey, we made it to Mark chapter 5. It's only taken several months, but we're here now. This is an exciting chapter that contains the stories of three people who were in utterly hopeless situations and how their lives were radically transformed by an encounter with Jesus. So I'm excited to to preach this chapter to you over the next three Sundays. Uh, We'll look at a story of a demon-possessed man, a story of a grieving father, and then a story of a very sick woman. We're going to dig in and eat together out of the Bible right now. Just at the beginning of this chapter, we're looking at the first 20 verses this morning. And so we'll be looking at that story of a demon-possessed man. I just want to dig right into the text with you today. There's a lot to cover this morning. Jesus is is traveling with his disciples and his other followers. They've crossed the Sea of Galilee, if you remember, at the end of chapter 4. Most likely, they're coming from Capernaum. Remember what's happened at the end of chapter 4. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, there was a great storm in the sea, at the Sea of Galilee, uh, that had frightened even the most... Um, seasoned fishermen among them. Uh, the guys were scared. The, dis- the disciples were scared uh, during this storm. And what has just happened here? There was a, a great storm on the sea, but then Jesus calms it. He calms the storm. It goes from a great storm, if you remember the points to the message two weeks ago, we had a great storm and then a great calm, and then with that great calm came a great fear. They're overcome. The disciples are overcome by this great fear as they understand even more who it is that they're following. The storm scared them, but being in the presence of Jesus, knowing more and more who he is, scares them even more. So what happens next? We're into chapter 5 here. Uh, We're we're looking at verse 1, and Mark tells us, Mark tells us in verse 1 that they came to the other side of the sea. They're crossing over. They're going to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee this time, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, this would be the southeastern shore. If you're familiar with the Sea of Galilee, I've put the map up on the, the screen, and there it is again uh, to, for you to see this and what it looks like. The southeastern shore of that sea was called the Decapolis. It's a region that was populated mostly by Gentiles. Verse 2, we find out that Jesus is no sooner out of the boat, no sooner on the shore, when he's confronted by a man with an unclean spirit. And it's, it's this encounter that our, our story really revolves around. Unclean spirit. Let's park on that for just a quick moment. The Greek word is akathartos. This word can be translated unclean like it is in the ESV. Your Bible might also say impure. It may say defiling. Those are all correct. It's a defiling spirit. This man has a defiling spirit within him, an an unclean and impure spirit. This is something demonic that has taken hold in his life. And then Mark shares for us some backstory on this man. It's contained in verses 3 through 5. If you look at the text, Mark writes, He lived among the tombs, 
That right there, according to Jewish law, would have made him unclean, to live among the dead. Mark continues to tell us, though, that no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. There's something greater than the natural world going on with this man. He has supernatural strength because of the demonic being living within him. Broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So the picture that Mark paints here for us, the reason he's giving us this backstory is he wants his readers to understand the absolutely hopeless situation that this man is in. His condition is beyond human intervention. He needs divine help. If he is going to be freed from this, he needs God to intervene, and praise the Lord, that's exactly what happens in the story. This poor man sees Jesus, probably while Jesus is still in the boat. He runs to him, and he falls down in front of him. That's verse 6 in the text. I'm basically just going to tell you a little bit here what happens, and we'll, we'll reference the specific verses as well. But verse 6, he falls down in front of him. Is that worship? Is this man worshiping Christ? Is that the intent of his falling down before him. I I don't believe it is. I'm conjecturing. This is my opinion, but I don't believe that he's worshiping and doing this. As the story continues, we see that it is not the man himself who is in control of his actions or his behavior, but it's the unclean and pure defiling spirits within him that are, that possess him. And it's these spirits, I'm using plural now on purpose because we'll, we'll see this as the story unfolds, but they cry out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. What are they saying to Jesus? Well, they begin by using a very common Hebrew phrase of the day. It's slang. It's in Hebrew idiom would be the technical word for it, but, but translated, the ESV translates it, what have you to do with me? The meaning here behind this phrase in Hebrew is, why are you interfering with me? What have you to do with me? Why are you interfering with me? It can even be a much more forceful, mind your own business, or get out of my face. And so these spirits are saying this to Christ. And then it's really interesting in the text that they say next, in Greek, they say, Orkizo de ton theon. Orkizo de ton theon. If we were to break that down, let me break that down for you. Orkizo is a first-person verb. It means to, I adjure you, I implore you, even I command you. The demons are saying to Jesus, I command you, say you, toned theon by God. I command you by God. The demons command Jesus in the name of God. This is interesting. 
Why would these demons swear by God? I, I mean, they know, they've already called them this, they know that they're speaking to the Son of God. They know very well, they know more clearly than his disciples do who it is that they are speaking to, that Christ is the eternal Son of the living God. As we've seen many times already, Mark is often very brief. And if you've been tracking with me in this series, you know that, that Mark is concise when he tells these stories. And so it's often good for us to throw out a lifeline to the other gospel authors. And that's what we're going to do here. Let's throw one out to Matthew at this point. How does Matthew record this statement from the demons? It's the exact same encounter that Mark's writing about, but this is Matthew's perspective on it and what he remembers having been said. Matthew 8.29 says, what, ha what have you to do with us, right, why are you interfering with me? Mind your own business. Get out of my face, the demons are saying to Jesus. O son of God, we know who you are. We know you're the eternal son of God. And then he says, have you come here to torment us before the time? That's very important. Matthew records these last three words that Mark doesn't. And I think it's explains why the demons implore Jesus in God's name. They call on Jesus to not torment them before the appointed time that is set by God for the judgment of Satan and his demons. And we studied this church when we carefully worked through the book of Revelation, that there will come a time yet in the future where Satan and his demons will be judged by the righteous judge, the living God. And, and so these demons, who yet were coming to their name, but these demons implore Jesus in God's name. They call on Jesus to not torment them before the appointed time for their judgment. Dr. Mark Strauss writes it this way. He says, the demons know, the demon knows its ultimate fate which God has decreed in the face of immediate expulsion by Jesus. It seeks to delay by appealing to God's decree of future judgment. The demon accuses Jesus of jumping the gun. They're saying to Jesus, look, we know that there's an appointed time for judgment. We don't think this is it yet. So you're getting a little bit ahead of yourself, O son of God. We implore you in the name of God, don't cast us out. This is what these demons are saying to Christ. Now, why are they making this accusation against Jesus? He hasn't really, Mark at least hasn't recorded him saying anything yet, but we find out in verse 8 that he had been saying to them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. You see, Jesus was already engaged with them. He had already engaged them and said, you're coming out of him. Your, your days possessing this man are done. He's no longer your land to occupy. He doesn't belong to you anymore. And Jesus had already engaged them. And they knew that their time possessing this man was over. And then Jesus asked them, the demons, what is your name? The demons answered through the man, my name is Legion. You see it in the text there. My name is Legion, for we are many. 
And here we begin to get a sense of the chaos, the chaos that this man would have lived with that had existed within his mind and his body. Just in case you're not familiar with this, let me break this down for you a little bit. Legion is the Greek word translated into English, very close cognate there, legion. This represented a Roman military unit made up of approximately 6,000 soldiers. A legion was approximately 6,000 Roman soldiers. Now, this may or may not have been the precise number of demons, but it sure does paint a very terrifying picture, doesn't it? We would think that thousands, thousands of demons are inhabiting the mind and the body of this man. It's, it's too horrible to, to even begin to imagine. Mary Magdalene had been freed from seven evil spirits. I can't even imagine that. They have seven other distinct personalities residing in your mind, convoluting, distorting, speaking terrible thoughts into you. Imagine thousands, thousands of distinct demonic personalities that existed in this man's mind. Legion knows who Jesus is. We'll call him by his name now. These foul spirits know that they are no match for Jesus. They know it. They know it. There's no doubt in their mind. This is not going to be a battle that happens. Legion is not digging in and getting ready to go with Jesus. There's no battle here. And they know that. So what do they do? They beg. They default right to begging. We know we cannot beat you, Jesus, and and so here's our request. If you look at verse 10, and he, Legion, begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, that's interesting, and I, I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't try to at least give you some kind of explanation for this. Just know that I'll be doing some conjecturing with my explanation. Why is it important to Legion to not be sent out of the country? These evil spirits seem to be territorial beings. Demons that are assigned to a particular region. Now, church, again, I need to say this again. Our knowledge from the scriptures on this topic is very limited. And I only feel comfortable as a preacher of the word at speaking authoritatively when I know that I can stand on this. And and so what I'm doing now is half conjecture. From what I understand of this, here's what I think. Because I'm not going to assume by any means that I know how all of this works. By all of this, I mean the spiritual realm. However, there is some indication in Scripture that some demons may be assigned certain places, certain locations. There's a great example of this in the book of Daniel. I don't have the passage in front of me, 
So forgive me, it kind of just popped in there, but where an angel is coming to meet Daniel, and he says to him, I would have been here sooner, but I've been delayed, and I was delayed by the prince of Persia who kept me at bay for days. Basically, the idea is that there's a a demonic, angelic battle that happens and that that demon keeps the angel from getting to Daniel when he would have. Again, if you've ever read This Present Darkness or Piercing the Darkness by Frank Peretti, probably all these images are popping into your heads, right? I, I don't know how this works, but it's kind of a crazy passage. And, and, and for our purposes this morning, what I want to say about that is that the angel calls the demon the, the prince of Persia. He says there's this demon whose locale, his location, his territory is this geographic region. Now, this makes sense to me because I don't know what your experiences are. And I, believe me, I'm, any of you who know me well, I am not the guy who sees Satan lurking behind every corner. I'm not the guy who always says, well, the devil made me do it. No, your flesh made you do it. <laughs> the devil didn't even have to get involved because there's enough sin rattling around in your life that your own flesh is enough to get you to do it. So I'm not the guy who always goes looking for the supernatural, but I do very much believe in the supernatural. And have you ever had the experience like I've had where you just walk into a place and you feel darkness? Anyone? Me too. My first encounter of this was when I was a college student in Grand Rapids. And I walked into what had historically been a Christian church. It was one of the, the oldest Christian churches in the city of Grand Rapids. Huge building right downtown. And for decades now, it had been a humanist church. And if you're not familiar with that idea, basically man is God. Humanism. And they had ripped and shredded everything of Christian truth and doctrine out of this body of believers until finally they just decided, let's worship us. And it became a humanist church. And the first time I walked into that building, I felt darkness fall on me. It was like a weight. Anybody out there? You guys know what I'm talking about? You ever experienced this? I I do wonder if there's something to this. Maybe Legion was assigned this territory of the Gerasenes, and that's why he begs Jesus to not be removed from that region. This was his territory. This was what he was to guard. And, And so these demons ask to be given access to a new host to continue their parasitic existence, and that's what they are, is parasites. Let's look at verses 11 through 12 in the text. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him. They begged Jesus. The demons are begging Jesus, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. Well, what does Jesus do with Legion's request? Look at verse 13. So he gave them permission And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000. And here again, we get another idea of how many demons there are 
possessing this poor man because they are able to fill the minds of 2,000 pigs. They rush down the steep bank into the sea and drown in the sea. The demons are no match for Jesus. You see, their number here is really irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It wouldn't have mattered if there were five demons, 50 demons, 500 demons, 5,000 demons, or 5 million demons. Jesus has power over them all. Jesus is just as much in control when dealing with 6,000 of them as he is in dealing with one. This is not a battle where the outcome is uncertain for Jesus, who is the almighty creator. Not only does he reveal his complete and absolute authority and power over the spiritual realm with this encounter with Legion, but he also, and don't miss this part of it, he also shows love to one poor Gentile man. One non-Jew whose life had been wrecked by these demons. Jesus rescues this man from this hideous oppression of legion. And now he's free. Chaos has been replaced by peace. The storm is silenced in his mind. I think it's beautiful that this happens right after the story of Jesus calming the sea on the Sea of Galilee. He calms a literal sea, and then he calms the storm in one person's mind right after that. Well, what happens next? Does everybody rejoice? Does everybody say, praise God for what happened in this man's life? Not so much. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. The people who live in that region don't choose to celebrate. They, well, let's just read what happens. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to see Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. People from the surrounding area come out to see what happens. They understand that Jesus has rescued this man from legion's control. And what is their reaction? Fear, not joy, not, oh my goodness, we're so happy for you. This is amazing. We, we could never help this guy. We could never take control of him. He's been making a mess of our lives. And Jesus, thank you so much for what you've done. That's not what happens. They don't celebrate with him. They're afraid. They're afraid of Christ. At the end of chapter 4, don't, don't miss this. Don't forget this. At the end of chapter 4 last week, we saw that the disciples were afraid of the wind and the raging sea, but they were even more afraid when Jesus calmed the sea. Here in chapter 5, church, these people certainly lived in fear of this man who was possessed by legion. He had supernatural strength, but they're even more afraid when Jesus conquers legion. They're even more afraid when this man is set free. The calm can be more terrifying than the storm. Fear is a normal response. I want to make sure that we, we talk about this briefly. Fear is a normal response when we witness the awesome power of God. It's normal, it's natural, because when you are in the presence 
of a holy God, and you understand that, and you see that to some degree, fear is actually quite a reasonable response. Dr. R.C. Sproul writes it this way. He says, when the Holy One is manifest in the midst of unholy people, the only appropriate human response is dread. When you see your sin and you see the sinlessness, holiness of God, dread is actually quite the, the proper response. And it's that feeling that often drives us where we begin to understand our need for a Savior, amen? That we can't possibly save ourselves. The question always is, what do you do with that fear? When you feel that fear in the presence of a holy God, what is your response? What does that fear drive you to do? The disciples in chapter 4 stay with Jesus. They were afraid, but their fear strengthened their belief. It drew them in more. What do these people do? Look at verse 16. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Would you you leave, please? Would you get out of here, please? We, We can't be in your presence. They beg him to leave. However, the man who... Jesus rescued from Legion has a very different thought. I love this. We see here one of the first evangelists that goes out with the message of Christ. Look at verse 18. This is such a cool part of the story. As he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, he's, he's done what he came there to do. I mean, think about this. He, he basically gets off the boat. He's on the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee in the heart of the Decapolis, these ten cities. Ten cities that were tied together. They were Gentile cities. They were tied together politically and economically. And he's in the heart of this region. He has this quick encounter with the man, cast the spirit out of the spirits out of him, and says, Okay, guys, that's why we came. Let's go. <laughs> and he just gets, they just get right back in the boat. But this man who he has saved, rescued from Legion, look at verse 18 and what happens here and what he says as he was getting into the boat the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with them well of course of course he does i mean in the presence of jesus he finally knows peace this might be terrifying for everybody else but for this man he went from having thousands of demonic beings living within him to peace just think of the change of course he wants to be with jesus Well, wonderful. Jesus has a new team member, yes, but he's given a very different assignment than the rest. His assignment is to stay home and to testify. Verse 19, and he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Why does Jesus not allow the man to go with him? Because he's giving him a completely different assignment. He is to stay there in the Decapolis and to witness to, witness to the kingdom. His mission field, like most of us, we can kind of relate to this because this man goes from chaos to peace. He goes from darkness to light. He goes from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ. 
And he's not sent out to go somewhere else. His mission field is to stay in his home and to be a witness for Christ. And that's the story for most of us. We come to know Christ, and then we are to be a witness right where he has planted us. So what does he do? What does he do with this great commission that he's been given? He obeys. And he does even more than what's commanded. Jesus says to him, I want you to go to your home and tell your friends about what the Lord has done for you. Well, look what he actually does. Look at verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis. This is a huge geographic area where these 10 cities are laid out. And he goes to these 10 cities and he proclaims what Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Again, let me show you on a map here. Those are the cities of the Decapolis. Look how big that is. It's a confederation of 10 cities with defense and trade agreements. They worked together to stay safe and also to do commerce. It's a very large area that this man reaches. This man went out and gave testimony to the power of Jesus to still the very chaos of hell itself. That was his message. This is who I used to be. This is what was the case in my life. I was possessed by thousands of demons, but then I had an encounter with this man. His name is Jesus, and now I know peace. This would have been the mission of a lifetime. I mean, to reach people in all 10 of these cities would have taken him his whole life. Don't miss that. This poor man is freed from legion's oppression, and he's given the Great Commission from Jesus years before the disciples are. This is still fairly early on in Christ's ministry. It's going to probably be almost two years before the disciples are given the Great Commission before the Ascension. And he's given a great commission. I want you to go out and I want you to proclaim. I want you to proclaim what the Lord has done for you. And he does it. It's all we know about him. He was the apostle to the Gentiles years before the apostle Paul was. Dr. Ben Witherington writes this. He says, it is then quite likely that Mark's largely Gentile audience, remember who Mark is writing to. This goes back many months, I know, so I'll remind you. He's writing to Christians in Rome. That's who Mark originally wrote his gospel to. It is then quite likely that Mark's largely Gentile audience would have understood the story to suggest that while Jesus did not inaugurate a full-fledged Gentile mission himself during his lifetime, he did provide certain precedents for that sort of mission. What's the point? Jesus was always concerned about the Gentiles. And early on in his ministry, he sent this man out to reach them with the gospel. I mean, can you picture this man going from city to city in the Decapolis, now with a sound mind, proclaiming what Jesus had done for him in his life? Just get a mental image of that. Day after day, week after week, month after month, this man moving on to a new territory, preaching the kingdom. I mean, I'm sure he faced some persecution. He was probably like, is that the best you got? Is that the best you got? I once had 6,000 demons in me, and you want to throw a rock at me? Go ahead. I'm sure he faced some persecution. But at the same time, 
the text tells us he was faithful to the mission. We don't know anything about him after the story. We only know that he fulfilled his mission from Jesus. And that's really all we need to know. There's really, church, no better testimony for you and I to have than that we have fulfilled our mission from Jesus. It's the only testimony that we need. Well, as we close, let me offer you one thought by way of application. Just one application point for this morning. There are others in the text, and hopefully you have been seeing them. But here's how I want to end this with you. By saying this to you, spiritual warfare is real. Spiritual warfare is real. I want to emphasize this as we close today because I'm not sure that we live like we believe it. But there are battles happening all around us, church, that we do not see. And that it seems like, from my experience in the Christian church, the last 40 years of my life, it seems like most Christians would prefer to live in ignorance of. They don't want to think about it, and they certainly don't act or think or speak like the spiritual reality that is all around us is real. So C.S. Lewis wrote this at the beginning of the Screwtape Letters, which is his fictional account of two demons having a conversation about how they could lead someone astray. And he writes this in the introduction. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their, to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Here's the point. C.S. Lewis is saying, look, if, if you're that person who sees the devil behind every tree and you're constantly thinking about the, the demonic and, and the spiritual realities, well, maybe you're thinking about it too much, and maybe you just need to focus on Christ. That's what C.S. Lewis would say on one end of that spectrum. It, look, it's not the devil that made you do it, it's your flesh that made you do it. it battle the sin in your life. C.S. Lewis would also say, though, but it's wrong to disbelieve in their existence. You see, I think we have maybe some functional Christian atheists out there. In other words, you believe the tenets of Christianity, and you've trusted in Christ for your salvation, but you're living your life as though the spiritual realm doesn't exist at all. And that's not good either. I think, actually, most Christians think more like atheists, as if the spiritual realm doesn't exist. So let me remind you of the truth this morning. Peter writes and says this. He writes to the church and he warns us, brothers and sisters, he warns us. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Peter's saying there is a devil. Satan is real. His demons exist. 
and their goal is to destroy you. So be watchful. Be sober-minded. Certainly our, this, our story this morning illustrates that reality well. Dr. William Lane writes the, this account more graphically than any other in the Gospels. The story of Jesus and Legion is what he's talking about. More graphically than any other in the Gospels indicates that the function of demonic possession is to distort and destroy the image of God in man. They have one purpose for their existence, and it is to destroy us. It is to wreak as much damage on people as possible. However, this should never cause us to fear, church. It should cause us to rejoice because through the cross, Jesus has conquered the demonic realm. And so we don't need to fear. He shows this in this encounter with Legion, but he shows it even more clearly on the cross. The Apostle Paul talks about it. He says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he writes, he disarmed Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The cross on the natural level was a shameful way to die. It was public humiliation as well as excruciating pain and ultimately death. But on the cross, it wasn't Jesus who was humiliated. It wasn't Jesus who was put to shame. It was Satan who was put to shame. Because Jesus fulfilled the first time the gospel is ever preached in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where it talks about the, the son, the child, who will crush the head of the serpent. Christ himself. And on the cross, Jesus crushed that punk's head. Satan was done at that point. Triumphed over him. Mark has been showing us the power of Jesus so clearly in the gospel. He has now revealed his power over chaos in the natural world by silencing the wind and the sea. Jesus has now revealed his power over chaos in the spiritual world by rescuing this man from legion. A plurality of thousands of demons. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our captain. He is with us and he is in us. And with that assurance, let's live with an awareness of the warfare that is happening all around us in the spiritual realm knowing that the one who conquered the enemy, the one who crushed the head of the serpent on the cross, lives with us and lives in us, we can walk in confidence in the spiritual warfare. May we hear the Lord's battle cry today, and may we choose to fight. So what Paul says to the Ephesians. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul's saying our fight is not with people. We don't fight against people. It's not our war. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic, cosmic powers uh, over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Where's the battle for us, church? Where is our fight? It's not with people. Our fight is for people. Our fight is against our enemy. 
And some of us need to engage that fight because we're living as if the spiritual realm doesn't exist. And we need to get in the battle. We need to stop hiding behind a tree or off on a hillside while the battle's happening. And it's time to engage the war. That we would be the hands and the feet of Jesus as he rescues people from the oppression of the enemy. How do we do this? How do we fight? It's a whole other message in itself. I'll just give you three words. Prayer, love, the truth. How do we fight this battle against the spiritual enemy in the spiritual realm? Get on your knees and pray. Love people and give them the truth. Preach the gospel. Share the gospel. Live out the gospel. I'll close with this passage. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Again, church, our fight is not with people. Our fight is for people. Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is how we do battle. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Worship team, come on up. Let's pray. Father, even now, even in this time, I believe that there's been a battle happening in this room. Some of us want to dismiss this. We don't want to live in this reality. We, we want to live in the natural, and we want to try to work through our own problems and our own tough situations in our lives. Maybe it's a relationship issue with a family member or a friend. Maybe it's a sickness that is plaguing someone we love. Maybe it's the recent death of someone we care about. Lord, we want to we live in the natural, but God, you're, you're calling us to see the supernatural aspect of what's happening and that spiritual warfare is a reality, God. And I, and I think that maybe even right now, the enemy does not want some of us to believe it. And he's whispering into hearts and minds in this room, that's a little bit spooky, come on. You know that's not real. God, I pray that you would convince us, that you would show us the reality of this, that we would become a people, both individually and that we would become a people together as a church that knows how to engage this war, that is so committed to prayer that we would go to war against the real enemy in our prayer lives, that we would be down on our knees crying out to you on behalf of other people, crying out to you, God, on behalf of our country, crying out to you, Lord, on behalf of our church, 
for loved ones who have not yet trusted in you for their salvation, for each other when we go through difficult times, Lord, that we might know the power of prayer here at Fellowship Baptist Church, that we might believe it, that we might see it as being one of our greatest weapons against the real enemy. God, that we might know the power of love, that we might know the power of love for each other, love that looks over offenses, that when we offend each other, we make it right. We don't let the root of bitterness take hold of us, but we go to each other and we make those things right, Lord. We might know the the power of love. And Lord, may we always be a people who stand on the gospel and know the power of the truth in someone's life. That the most loving thing we can do for someone is to tell them the truth, to share the gospel with them and to introduce them to Jesus Christ. Lord, would you make us more aware in the days to come of the spiritual warfare that's happening all around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.